This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy, an apologetics ministry designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the Academy offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the Academy goes live, and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we want to deal with the nature of first light, talking about uh, another one of the elements of creation week. You'll recall last week we dealt with uh, day number six of creation and answered some of the challenges there, and uh, this week I want to to talk about the nature of first light. One of the challenges that we deal with when we're answering questions about creation has to do with uh, the challenge, of course, of the days of Genesis. And so, again, we looked last week at how uh, how do all of the events that the Bible seems to require on day six, how do all of those get done in, in one day? And we looked at that. And another challenge that we face is uh, that on days one through three of creation, there is no sun. And yet, we see all kinds of things going on. We see um, plant life that supposedly requires um, a sun uh, in order to grow. That's, of course, one thing that we see. We see the fact um, that there is a light source, uh, but the Bible, uh, at least on the face of it, does not tell us what that is. And so we're going to talk about that. And um, I have a you know I have my notes and everything here uh, in front of me this morning, but but in a certain sense uh, this is going to kind of be a little bit more conversational. Um, I've got some th- some thoughts I, I jotted down, and I just kind of want to move through some of these with you, um, and see if we can kind of come to the to 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 the bottom of this. Now, you may not like my ultimate conclusion of this. And it's not because it's uh, bad or because it's contrary to anything that we would hold on this view at all, necessarily. Uh, It's just that I'm not so convinced that there is a good answer to this question. But I think it's because an answer to it is not required. And uh, I'm going to flesh some of that out. If that interests you at all, uh, stick around uh, for the rest of this podcast because we're going to talk about that and flesh some of that out. And I'll give you some reasons why I think uh, that this challenge of first light, um, in a certain sense, for us to answer um, the challenge would be to uh, give way to considerations that some think that we should not even include. And that sounds a little uh, um, enigmatic at the moment, but I'm going to try to make that clear to you as uh, as we go forward this morning. So before we dive right in, just a couple of quick reminders. I'd encourage you to go to uh, steveshram.com slash defend, steveshram.com slash defend. And when you go there, you can sign up for our Defend Your Faith with Confidence course. And this is a free email course. Um, 
you're going to get basically six emails that uh, come into you over the next six days. Uh, as soon as you um, sign up for the course, those emails are going to start pumping out to you. And the first email is a bit of an introduction. The next four are some lessons that will help you answer some of the toughest objections to Christianity. And then the sixth lesson closes out the series, gives you a little bit more information from our ministry, and of course, uh, what kind of things you can expect to hear from us, and what kind of uh, things that we offer to help you grow in your Christian walk, to help you grow in uh, evangelism, and to help you share the message of the gospel, not just of creation. We deal a lot on our website with different topics. Uh, We release a blog post every Tuesday, and we release videos uh, every so often as well. No schedule on the videos, just uh, whenever we have time to record another one and and get another one posted, we, we, we put them out there. They're real short easy to digest, and we put quotes, uh, quote images you can go download. We've got those on the site. So we just want to create uh, resources, that's all, just some resources uh, that, we, that we can share with you and share with uh, the Christian community to help spread the gospel and to help others come to the knowledge of the truth. We believe we have a rational worldview, and we certainly want to show how that is the case. Uh, For those of you just joining, of course, this is the Creation Academy. This is a creation-specific podcast uh, that is one element of of our ministry over there. And so uh, creation is a a specific uh, passion of mine, something I love. And so I started the podcast uh, basically just about creation science and about new advances in creation science and helping to navigate uh, conversations about creation since the origins model is a a really big debate today. Uh, You know, who's got origins right? And I'm going to say, unfortunately, creationists have not come to the table um, in, in... in practice, with being able to answer objections well, uh, this is generally speaking, of course, and so we need to do a better job. And so this podcast is to help you to do a better job, to help you to have more information to bring to the table when folks ask you about your convictions on origins. And believe it or not, those subjects do come up, and you're going to need to know. Uh, exactly how to respond in those situations. And so that's what we hope to bring you here at the Creation Academy. Speaking of the Creation Academy, of course, those of you who have been with us for a while know that we are um, hoping to launch an online platform in early 2019 of the same name uh, called the Creation Academy. This is the Creation Academy podcast, but that will just be the Creation Academy. And essentially, you can go right now to jointca.co, jointca.co, and get on the wait list, and that will give you access into our Facebook group, our private Facebook group. We're already doing things over there, got some conversations going on over there, and you can join up with that group, ask for help from other friends and mentors, uh, Christian brothers and sisters who are in that group who want to help you learn and grow, and they're there as well to learn and grow. So if you've got something to contribute, feel free to join us over there and uh, contribute your ideas. Uh, We want you, literally, to help us build the Creation Academy. Um, We're going to put out uh, our best ideas and our best thoughts, but ultimately, um, I want to give you the kind of information that you want to have. That only makes sense, right? Uh, So if you go on there, I want you to go on there, go to the Creation Academy, um, uh, go to jointca.co, sign up for the wait list. You'll get an email. It'll give you information for how to join that Facebook group. Join up into the Facebook group, and let's start talking about it. I'm really, really excited to see what the Lord's going to do, and hopefully the Lord will use this in in a great way. Uh, for his kingdom. And again, we just want to do according to the will of God. And uh, we're to our best of our knowledge and to the best of our ability, uh, we're not going to do anything contrary to the will of God uh, in this ministry. Now, we all falter, we all fail, but uh, we're, we're seeking the Lord's direction for where to take this. And we're just excited to have you along on the journey. So thank you so much for joining us. All right, so let's take a look at this issue for just a few moments. First light, dealing with the first 
three days of Genesis in, in the first light issue. Let, let's first of all look at uh, the the biblical data surrounding this. Okay, so it seems to suggest at, at the face of it that there was light in the beginning that was separate from the sun. So uh, consider the following verses. On day one, we need to look at Genesis 1 and verses 1 through 5. The Bible says this, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and morning were the first day. So again, that's pretty clear. Uh, We see that in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And immediately, there was light. God, you'll recall, as we talked about a little bit last week, has a a very call and response relationship with his creation. God commands and things stand fast. Uh, Psalms talks about that, okay? God commands and things get done. Now, of course, he has given us free will. We have the ability to make choices given a certain range of options, Uh, okay, Uh, a certain range of circumstances. We have the ability to choose between one thing or the other, and unfortunately, this choice also enables us to disobey God. But uh, God's creation is subject to Him, and it responds in such a way that things happen. (laughs) When God wants something done, things get done. And so that is what happened uh, on day one. We see God says, let there be light, and there was light. And then God divided the light from the darkness. Now, there's some interesting things maybe going on in in that verse. And uh, so we're going to kind of dissect that a little bit, but I just want to kind of give you some of the biblical data around this first so you can start thinking about it. But I want you to hang on that phrase, and God divided the light from the darkness, because this is going to be um, pretty pretty important as we look further into this issue. And God names them. God names the darkness, and he names uh, the day. He, he, he names the, the light, and he names the darkness. And uh, this is uh, more of a theological point, not really necessary to what we're talking about today, but um, we have a God who creates distinctions. He, he names things to show his creatures that he is in command of those things. He is in charge of those things. And the nighttime was a symbol of of, of death. Uh, the nighttime was a very uh, scary time. Uh, of course, you have to think about the fact that there was not as much understanding of uh, the world from a scientific perspective then as we have today. Now, that does not mean that ancient people were stupid. <laughs> uh, it does not mean that uh, at all. It doesn't mean that they couldn't think. It, it, there's a lot of things that that does not mean that a lot of people... Um, put on to them. They they, uh, they make it appear as though these uh, people are stupid or brutish or uh, completely unscientific in their ways, when that doesn't appear to be the case at all. But it's just a fact that we didn't have the capabilities then uh, that we have today. And so we understand more things. There are things to us today that are less mystical and less spiritual to us than they would have been to them because there were things that they did not understand. But when God comes in, and for instance, nighttime would be one of those things. But when God comes in and he names the nighttime, this shows the Israelites that he has command. He has control over it. The nighttime is subject to God. It's not the other way around. God is transcendent past the light, past the day. God owns them, God created them, God divided them, God names them. They are subject to God in just exactly the same way 
that the Hebrews are. And so this is really uh, about showing the Israelites the character of God, who God is. Okay, so that's day one. So let's move past that a little bit and and look at day four. We're going to skip down, uh, same chapter, Genesis 1, of course. We're going to skip down to verses 14 through 19 and, and take a look there. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, uh, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and morning were the fourth day. So we have here uh, another uh, day, and this is uh, day four. By all accounts, on a face value reading of this, it appears to be a entirely separate day, for one thing. Uh, it uh, appears to have corresponding elements, uh, just kind of observing some things here, right? So it, it, it's got it's got light. Um, one thing that this set of verses has that the first set of verses had on day one, uh, or excuse me, that the first set of verses on day one did, did not have, uh, is light bearers. And this is a significant point. On day one, we've got light. On day four, we've got light. But on day four, we've got a light bearer. We do not have this same light bearer or any light bearer at all, at least according to a face value reading of the text and according to uh, every Hebrew scholar that I could find. Uh, nobody's arguing for this. Uh, okay, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I'm sure there are some, uh, even Hebrew scholars, who are arguing for this, but I would say it's probably the vast minority who would argue that the light in day one is the same as the light in day four. And we're going to talk about that uh, in some considerations here in just a minute. So, um, I mean, that's really the biblical data on on this in terms of the first uh, uh, couple days. And what can we glean from this? What kind of information can we can we see when we're dealing with first light? Well, there are some important considerations as we look at uh, the text that we just read, all right? And uh, so I want to talk to you about a few of those. The first one is A&E thought. And uh, if you're familiar, of course, with the origins debate at all, uh, and especially as it pertains to the writings in Genesis and uh, even in the just the early chapters of the Bible, you are uh, familiar with this term, A&E, the ancient near East. And there have been many books to come out recently that seek to understand different facets of the Old Testament, especially in light of this context. And some of the most popular ones are certainly uh, John Walton's works. He has released the Lost World series, where uh, he deals with Adam and Eve, he deals with Genesis one, he deals with the flood, etc. There are uh, uh, there's one or two more of those, I believe. And so Walton's got some work on that. Uh, he's probably the most popular one who who deals with those motifs. Um, Doctor Paul Copan, he is a Christian philosopher. Uh, I believe he is uh, getting ready to release a a book co-worth co-authored with someone, although I can't remember exactly who, um, and uh, it, it's going to be dealing with some of those facets of Genesis, and I, I have a feeling, I have a feeling that it's going to be along those same lines, and the reason why I think that is because that's kind of the approach he takes in his book, Is God a Moral Monster?, dealing with some of the uh, hyperbolic evidences 
or tendencies, maybe I should say, of those writing in the ancient Near East to uh, to kind of help uh, understand how we should take what seem to be genocidal chapters in the uh, in in the book of the in the books of the Bible, uh, in Joshua and, and places like that. Now, uh, that's a discussion for a different day. We do not have genocide in the Bible, by the way. We cannot use the word genocide to describe that. Again, we'll talk about that another time, maybe. Uh, write about that sometime. Actually, we have written a little bit about that. But uh, the point that I want to make to you is that uh, it, it's very popular in uh, scholarship today to just say, well, maybe this particular uh, thing that we find in the Bible does not actually mean what it appears to say. And this uh, is is difficult for me. Uh, just and I'm again we're just kind of speaking off the cuff here a little bit but 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 this is this is difficult for me to, to deal with and um you know you might call me a kooky fundamentalist I don't know but I'm just skeptical of anyone who comes along and and says look the the Bible, when it speaks to a certain issue, does not actually mean what it says. When somebody starts talking like that, even if they have good intentions, I immediately get very, very skeptical. And I'll tell you why. When I when I look at the Bible, uh, there are a couple uh, fundamental interpretive presuppositions I have. Now, I think that uh, they're warranted presuppositions, uh, but there are just a few that I have as a result of uh, my time growing up with the Bible. These are things that I would not hold these presuppositions if I thought there was good reasons um, for them not to uh, be true. All right. So a, cu- a couple things. The, th- the first one that seems clear to me is that uh, God is a communicator. God is a communicator. You read your Bible without any knowledge of theology or whatsoever, you will come to a similar conclusion. God is a communicator. Anything that God does, by definition, he is the best at it. He's the, uh, to speak philosophically, he is the greatest possible being. He is the maximally great being. If, if a thing can be done, if a thing can be thought, if, if a thing is logically possible, by definition, the best version of that is found in God. God inspired the scriptures. So that means God does communicate. If God communicates, that means God is the best communicator. That means God is able to clearly get across what he wants someone to to see. Okay, now, the question is, how does that relate to us? How does that relate to the Bible writers? Are are there things in the Bible that meant something different to writers of the Bible than they would mean today? And now, that's an interesting question, and one that I'm not totally decided on, on on some things. Um, And... What certainly does seem clear to me, though, is that when we look at the Bible, and this is another one of my presuppositions that kind of flows from the first one, when we look at the Bible, it appears that God intended to communicate to those who lived in the day that uh, that the events were happening, uh, those characters who we find in the Bible, God intended to communicate to them. It certainly appears that God intended to communicate to the church fathers, a couple thousand years ago, as the church was um, uh, expanding and growing in a world that was completely opposed to the teachings of Christ, uh, it appears that God meant to communicate to those who formed the United States of America, for example. And uh, we now live in a nation who uh, even the most consistent atheists um, will admit uh, is a nation that fundamentally lives on Christian values and presuppositions about the nature of the world, and there are plenty who don't admit that, trust me, Uh, that's not pertinent to my argument, okay, Uh, but the point I want to make is that God also wants to communicate with us. So what does that look like? What does it look like for God 
to inspire a document that has to be relevant to all kinds of people groups uh, living at different times. And uh, I, I think that you can understand this by getting three helpful things uh, about the Bible, uh, about the inspiration of the Bible in your head by 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 understanding these things. And again, there's I'm not going to give you scripture to support each of these things um, today, but there is scripture in support of each one of these notions. And I think when you read the Bible, you have to take three things into account. The first one is uh, spiritual illumination. The second one is human attestation. And the third one is divine preservation. So, uh, unpacking those real quick, spiritual illumination deals with the fact that there are elements of the Bible that you are not going to understand until you are a Christian. There are hidden truths, hidden wisdom, hidden uh, mysteries. The gospel itself is one of those uh, things. Just because a person can recite what the gospel accomplished does not mean a person understands the gospel. For I fully believe that anyone who actually understands the gospel is by definition a Christian. Um you don't have to, you, you, you're not going to be a Christian just in virtue of the fact that you believe in God. You're not going to be a Christian in virtue of the fact that you go to church or that you read the Bible or that you can memorize the Bible or, or any of those things or that you pray or any of those things. It doesn't matter. You don't, you, if you believe in some sort of spiritual force, that does not make you a Christian. The Apostle Paul uh, seems cr- quite clear. You can especially see these themes in in um, the letters to the Corinthians, particularly First Corinthians, deals with this this notion that there are some things that the world just cannot understand because they are not spiritually um, discerned. They are not able to discern things from a spiritual perspective, and Christians can. And again, that's not some kind of you know, nanny nanny boo boo kind of thing to the rest of the world. Uh, the rest of the world. That's not the point. Uh, of course, the point is that you have to uh, read the Bible with a spiritual, soft spiritual heart to really be able to grasp its truth. Of course, you can uh, superficially grasp elements of the Bible, but really understanding what the Bible is meaning to communicate, that is a spiritual thing that only some people have access to in virtue of their relationship to God in Christ. So that's number one. The second thing to realize about the Bible is that it was written with human attestation. Human attestation. Okay, so uh, this means that God did not um, anthropomorphize uh, a, a finger and write down the Bible and take a pen and write down the Bible. God used humans. Now, this means a couple of things. Of course, God is the uh, divine author of Scripture. God inspired the Scriptures to say what he wanted them to to say, uh, but he did that through the lens of human reporters. So when we look in the Gospels and we look at things that are superficially, they look contradictory, or maybe they just look um, a paradoxical in some way, oftentimes we can understand that if you put them all together, and one writer, I don't have his name in front of me or I would give it to you, perhaps I can get that in the notes, one writer has done a great job at uh, at cohering the four gospels, I can't even explain it to you how good how good he did on this. Sean McDowell actually featured him on his website as well, and uh, it was just a, I mean just an astounding job at what he did. And you can really see how the eyewitness nature of the gospels is important to fulfilling the whole story and how it all worked. But you can see that some writers give details that others don't, and they're not contradictory. They say different things, such as one woman at the tomb versus two, but certain other writers give you more information. And so this is exactly the kind of thing that we would expect from eyewitnesses. So uh, the uh, for the vast majority of events in the Bible, except for a 
arguably a very little bit in Genesis, there were human eyewitnesses to the events. And most of those events were written and recorded by those eyewitnesses. So this is a um, a historical book. The, the Bible is meant to be historical. It is meant to convey um, eyewitness information as accurately as possible to the theological end intended by God. So we have to understand that there is a human element here, but not in an erroneous sense. Error does not enter into the Bible through the human element because that part has been divinely inspired. But the human element enters in because it was eyewitness. It was events that were recorded in history from the lens of people who saw things happening with their own eyes. Okay, so we have spiritual illumination. You have to be a Christian to understand everything the Bible is trying to tell you. By definition, you cannot understand everything the Bible is trying to tell you if you are not a Christian. I don't care how many years you've studied it. Without a regenerated heart, you cannot truly see the great truths of the gospel. So there's that. And then there's human attestation. We have to understand that humans wrote the Bible, but they did it under the authority and under the verbal plenary inspiration of God. This means God did not speak it to them. God, uh, in a modern sense, we might use the term laid it on their hearts. Uh, God supernaturally guided this process in the way that he saw fit and accomplished his, um, his ends. But the third thing, and those two first two things are all well and good and virtually uncontested. Now, this third thing is uh, contested in different ways, uncontested in other ways, depending on who you're, you're talking to, and it's divine preservation. Divine preservation. And there are many roads we could go with this, and I'm not going to go down hardly any of them. Uh, all I want to uh, mention about that is this point. If the Bible is divinely preserved, then it stands to reason that it can report accurately about the nature of reality to people groups across different times and different places. In other words, the Bible in one sense, is a transcendent document. And so the reason I went off into that uh, kind of uh, spiel is because I want you to understand that when we read the Bible, we have to we have to approach it with these elements. We have to say, look, uh, d- who did God write the Bible for? God wrote the Bible for, of course, uh, or, or, or God... Let's be more precise in our our terms. God inspired the Bible through the human writers for the immediate audience, but also for us. And the reason I know that is because uh, here we are. (laughs) Uh, We're still here. The Bible is still our revelation. And so the question is, can we only take theological information from the Bible? Can we only take historical information, or can we also take historical information? Can we take all of the historical information? If there appears to be things that comport with our understanding of modern science, are we to say no? That must not be what that means because of the fact that the Bible was written in this ancient Near Eastern um, context? I'm not convinced of that. I'm not convinced of that. Now, there are multiple solutions, and I'm not going to go into you know a, a detailed exposition of these, but uh, the way I see it, there are three possibilities. Number one, the Bible is wrong. The Bible uh, is... Uh, there are those who would argue, uh, just to kind of back up a little bit and give you some background, there are those who would argue that the Bible, having been written in this ancient Near Eastern context, is, um, is uh, teaching a three-tiered cosmology. It is teaching, and you can go find pictures of this uh, all over the internet, it's teaching this uh, cosmology that many of Israel's ancient Near Eastern neighbors seemed to hold that uh, had a flat earth uh, with kind of a a solid dome that was covering over top of it, and um, underneath of the 
earth. Uh, it was hollow, and that's where Sheol was down there and all this. And then underneath of that was the great deep. Okay, so there was this uh, concept of the way the cosmos looked, according to ancient Near Eastern thought, that many want to say that the Bible teaches. Well, I have numerous uh, problems with that. Um, but I'm not going to go deep into those things today. What I want to do is say in light of that, in light of this is what the uh, ancient Near Eastern thought was, and this is what supposedly uh, the ancient Israelites also held to. Um, there is some evidence that this is, uh, that even the Hebrew quote-unquote evidence uh, for this is actually stemming from Greek sources, but I'm not going to get into all that right now. What I want you to think about is what if that's the case? What if, you know, uh, what do we do with the fact that some of the Hebrews might have thought about cosmology in the same way that the rest of the ancient Near East uh, does uh, or did? I mean, what, what does that do for inerrancy? What does that do for divine preservation, right? So here are a few thoughts. Um, number one, the Bible could just be wrong. I mean, I'm not saying that's the option. I'm not saying that's the case. I don't think that's the case. Um, but of the available options, okay, that's one. Uh, the Bible could just simply uh, be wrong. Number two, the uh, Bible was inspired to teach cosmology as we see it today. And people say, well, uh, these were pre-scientific people. They weren't thinking about the cosmos. Well, uh, that's arguable. Uh, we have plenty of evidence of um, of uh, astronomical uh, investigation being looked into by many ancient people groups. And we dealt with that a little bit during our series about the biblical origin of um, of humanity. And uh, I, I forget exactly what it is, uh, what exactly it's called. Um, it has to do with a mixture of. Um, architecture and um, astronomy, um, astro-architecture, something like that. I forget the actual term. Um, but there were uh, a lot of uh, ancient people groups who were interested in these things. So the cosmos were uh, certainly of interest uh, to, these, to these people. So um, the question becomes, is the Bible reporting accurately about it? Well, it could be that... That one possibility is that uh, it was recorded correctly in the beginning by eyewitnesses. These documents were passed down, and uh, when Moses compiled all the documents together from the various editors that had held previously, uh, um, it was after the point in time that some had erroneously understood the cosmos from that perspective. So that, in other words, they would have had the, the truth passed down, but as different lines become corrupt, as you go through the Tower of Babel event and um, you're, you're getting mythical elements into your teaching and uh, undoubtedly the true religion is not spreading with all of the people as they go into the different parts of the world, you get distortions of the original. And to me, this is compelling. Um, probably the most um, uh, widely known a proponent of this view as far as the documents being handed down would be P.J. Wiseman. And so he's written about that before, and this has to do with the uh, the, the Toledoffs in Genesis actually being colophons, where, um, you know, we see uh, this is the generations of. And we see that kind of, um, some people say it's a sign-off on the chapter, some people say that opens up into the next. I'm not going to argue uh, for that view necessarily on on this podcast, but um, that is one option, is that the original was recorded indeed to teach cosmology as we understand it today, and any erroneous cosmology is just a corruption of, of that uh, due to the sin that was in the world. I think that's certainly possible. Another option, and this one I, I find kind of compelling as well, is that God inspired the scriptures in such a way to make either cosmology work. And by the way, I'm not alone on this, um, on this line of thinking. And I, I, apparently I'm terrible with names this morning. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, but uh, someone has written in the Journal of Creation about this. And um, quite convincingly, uh, I think, he, he really gives, uh, he really works on the term 
uh, Rakia that deals with the firmament in Genesis 1. And I think the title uh, of the article is called um, Does Genesis 1 Teach a Solid Dome or something like that. Um, and you can find that. But essentially he argues, and I got these three distinctions from him, by the way, these three options. Um, but essentially he argues that it could be that God simply inspired the Bible or preserved the Bible in such a way that depending on which cosmology you are approaching looking at the Bible from, it is not erroneous in either way. In other words, there are ways that the Bible could be interpreted through ancient and or modern cosmologies. And so this is a very interesting take on things. I had never really thought about that before I read. Uh, and by the way, this is a young age creationist publication. This guy is a total uh, young age creationist. There's there's nothing, no funny business going on here. But I think that's an interesting solution. Even if the Israelites did have a warped cosmology, and even if they recorded the Bible with that cosmology in mind, uh, the, we can still preserve inerrancy because we can understand the Bible in today's cosmological context as well. And I would expect something like that from a supernatural document, from a supernatural God who is the best communicator and intends to communicate with his preserved word through different uh, times and people groups and throughout the ages. So um, this is something that I certainly um can deal with on my view. So those are uh, some some thoughts on A and E thought. Now, uh, some people want to say that uh, this uh, light. Now we'll return it back to the light discussion, but I want you to 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 have that in the back of your pocket. Okay, think about uh, think about the ancient Near Eastern context and these different things as as we look at this. Now, some people want to say that perhaps it's the same light. Perhaps Genesis, uh, the Genesis day one and day four are actually dealing with the same light. And I've had this argued to me by those who say because of the fact that um, the darkness, uh, the light was divided from the darkness on these two separate occasions, that that definite article argues uh, for the fact that it's the same light and darkness. Well, I don't think that's true. Uh, at all. Um, number one, you have to take these days, yes, in the context of uh, their their chapter and so forth, but each of these are different days uh, if we read it at face value. So we have to understand them in context of what was going on on that day. And when we do that, when we do that, this, uh, this distinction of it being the same light absolutely disappears. Because think about this. Let's look at Genesis um, 2, 1, excuse me, um, chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. Watch this. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Now, uh, if you're looking at that on a piece of paper, uh, it's really clear to see that the darkness being referred to in Genesis 1-4 is the darkness being talked about in Genesis 1-2. It was this original darkness that is being dealt with on day one. When we get to day four, we're talking about something completely different. We're talking about uh, the light source specifically uh, that was lighting the earth and dividing the day from the night on the earth. Now, in this case, the light becomes day. It's called day, and the darkness um, is called night on Genesis day one. Uh, but again, um, what we want to glean from this is that we're probably talking about something um, different here uh, than the sun. Uh, that, that I'm going to say that is almost 100% the case. We're talking about something different than the sun for a few reasons. Um, in a modern sense, we realize that the that we can have light that is not the sun. Uh, so we make a distinction between light and the sun today in a modern sense. Uh, but this distinction was also there in the ancient Near East. Uh, in the ancient Near East, you actually had the waters that were above the heaven and kind of the blue light you know we see a blue sky today and we know why the sky is blue today however uh they in ancient near eastern thought believed that the uh that 
the sky was blue because there were waters above and there was light that lit that up. And then there was the light from the sun, but they believed that the sun, of course, was underneath of that or within that dome. And so there was a distinction. There was two different kinds of lights. There was overall light from overall darkness, and then there was the kind of light that the sun gave off versus the moon. Um, and um, and the kind of darkness that would be around because of the absence of the sun in that case. Um, so uh, when we look at this, I don't think we can say with the same light. Okay, now, could God be the light? Um Whenever this this particular topic comes up in Facebook groups, uh, always one of the first responses is in Revelation twenty, um, what is it twenty one or twenty two, where it says that that God will be the light. There's no need of the sun, uh, because God will be the light in the new heavens and new earth, and so on. Okay, um, no, 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 no. God was not the light in the beginning. God was not. Can we please put that to bed? <laughs> Let's put that suggestion to rest. Let's put it to bed. That's not what was going on here. No. It was a created light. This light was a created entity. It, it was not flowing from God itself. God himself, uh, in this sense, is not a luminary. Okay. He um, uh, was not the source of this light, whatever this light was. Okay. God will provide the light in the New Jerusalem, uh, but there's no suggestion that this could be the case in Genesis 1. Now, Second uh, Corinthians um, 4, 6 may give a little bit of a clue. And it says this, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, because it's referring to first light. Um, it, remember, look, it says, God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. It's talking about the first time a, a sinner receives the knowledge of the glory of God and the light that comes into them, the light, and any of you who have been saved can appreciate this illustration. And it's referencing back to creation. Okay, now, this means that if God commanded the light to shine out of darkness, it's quite unlikely that this is talking about sunlight. And of course, the reason, uh, my reason for that is uh, the sun shines in virtue of its own chemical composition. So we're not dealing with uh, sunlight here. We're dealing with something that could shine out of darkness. What kind of light can shine out of darkness? This is the question. But it can't be God, because... This light is a created entity, okay? Now, here's where it gets interesting. In a minute, I'm going to give you um, one scientific suggestion and another general quote about some different scientific suggestions that it could be. Um, however, I'm not going to hold to either of those um, with any kind of rigor at all. And I'll tell you why. I don't think we should speculate beyond the text here. Uh, creation week was a supernatural week. There were things going on, things operating during that week, miraculous processes that we could not duplicate today no matter how hard we tried. Uh, thank God for those who have developed robust cosmological arguments uh, that do not necessarily depend on uh, the Big Bang or things like that. I'm thinking specifically of Craig's um, Kalam, cosmological argument. It's an important argument. It does not depend on the Big Bang, although arguably the Big Bang from a scientific perspective on conventional dating is a is a good evidence, uh, is a good... Um, uh, it's something that can be used. It's, it's a tool. It's a tool that can be used uh, on that view to show how... Um, something like this could have happened, but I don't believe that it's correct. Uh, it's got numerous problems, but nevertheless, there are good uh, scientific and philosophical arguments for the beginning of the universe that have absolutely nothing at all to do with the Big Bang. And so some of these can be seen um, by talking about the Coulomb, which basically says whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe had a cause, uh, or the universe began to exist, so therefore the universe had a cause. And it's pretty simple to follow. There are a lot of new, just a lot of nuance to it. But um, so we have those things. 
past that, ought we to speculate beyond the text here? God has given us what he what we need to know. Remember, God is a communicator. If he is a communicator at all, and he is, then that means that he is the absolute best communicator. If God is the best communicator, he can get across what he wants us to know, and what he does not want us to know, he will not tell us. It is really that simple. In this case, I think it's important to know that first light shone out of darkness. It's important to know that we have days on days one through three. We have actual, ordinary days. We, we can't get around that because of the context of Genesis 1. Uh, we, can't, we can't get around that. We have ordinary days. We're dealing with ordinary days. We can't have anything more than that from a scientific perspective because then it has implications on our theology, such as death before sin, etc. And we've dealt with that numerous times in the past. So, um, should we speculate about this? Um, I, I don't know. Um, here's a quick three-point case. Creation was a miraculous supernatural event. It seems that God uh, omitted information that he could have given so I think we have sufficient reason then to not have to offer a scientific suggestion for this. And by the way, there are those who criticize young age creationists for approaching this text with a um, scientific mindset at all. And I would actually argue that young age creationists are really not going overboard here. Um, there have been some suggestions on some, some very scientific suggestions uh, about um origins models for the universe. Um, but I'm kind of with Dr. Danny Faulkner in his uh, most recent kind of thoughts on this subject are, and he's a creation astronomer for those who don't know, but his most recent thoughts on this subject are, look, this is a miraculous event. I'm not even sure that we can come up with a scientific explanation for this in terms of uh, understanding um, mechanistically how it happened. And I'm okay with that. And um, I certainly don't want to be on a, you know, be on, you know, all high and mighty here. Um, but if you're not okay with that, then it might be time to um, think less about your analyzing the Bible and think more about engaging with the author. Simple faith. We should be humble enough to have simple faith that there are certain things that we do not understand, and furthermore, that God did not want us to understand. And I'm okay with that. We should be okay with that. And that's not a cop-out in this case. We're literally dealing with something where we don't see a clear answer in the text. We can give scientific suggestions, but they would be nothing more than speculation because the text doesn't tell us, and beyond the text, we really shouldn't go. So that's my argument uh, for that. I, I really don't think that we should look past the text here. Because again, there are those who are going to say, look, we don't think we should interpret this in light of modern science at all. And well, okay, well, that's fine. I think there are elements in, in the Bible, especially when you look in Job. I think there are things that, that um, are very hard to understand if they're not being looked at in the context of modern science as we understand it today and modern um, d discovery. Um, but at the same time, we have to be cognizant and aware of the fact that God did not give us this. And so to, to give a scientific suggestion here where there is not one, this is just not something we should be forced to do or pressed to do um, by those with, with other views and, and with an agenda to, to disprove young age creationists. Um, in other words, just because we say that there should be a sign or there there is um, scientific information to be gleaned from the Bible it does not mean that we have to have a scientific answer for everything okay that's what I'm trying to say now that said uh, there have been some scientific suggestions along these lines um, for instance dr. John Morris uh, of the Institute for creation research uh, he's written this quote actually there are many sources of light not just the Sun there are also many types of light not just visible light. Short-wave light includes ultraviolet light, x-rays, and others. Long-wave light includes infrared light, radio waves, etc. Light is produced by friction, by fire, by numerous chemical reactions, as well as nuclear reactions of atomic fission and fusion. 
which is what we think is occurring in the sun. God had at his fingertips many options to accomplish his purposes. Light does not automatically require the sun. Close quote. And so many different suggestions there. Uh, Some at other creation ministries have, um, I think, rightly suggested that we have to be dealing with a directional light source if we're going to have days. But again, this says that we're looking at it from a scientific perspective. And I'm just not so convinced that we have to see this from a directly scientific perspective or that we have to have an explanation for it from a scientific perspective to understand that it was three days, three ordinary days. We get our definition of a day from the context. Uh, Definitions do not come from dictionaries. They come from the way the word is used in a particular context. That is where you get a definition of word. In Genesis 1, we have a few possible uses for day. We uh, uh, We have 12 hours. That is day versus night. We have a 12 hour period. God called the light day. Okay, so that's 12 hours. Uh, we have um, the evening and morning were the first day. We have day as is to be understood by an ordinary day. And then uh, we have uh, the fact that maybe the whole the whole six um, days could be seen as uh, as one day. If we look at Genesis 2-4, we see kind of a summation of the events of Genesis 1. And we can't stretch that context to thousands or millions of years Um it's just not permitted by the text. We can't get there. So uh, we have our information about the length of these days, not from any scientific suggestion, but from the text of the Bible itself. Okay? Uh, another possible suggestion for this, and we're going to uh, kind of close after this, but another possible suggestion uh, was suggested by uh, a man in uh, that I've interacted with in with one of our Facebook groups. Um, his name is Jim Gibson. And I want to certainly give this shout out to him. I think he is a um, high school chemistry teacher, or at least was a high school chemistry teacher. Uh, I hope I'm right on that. But uh, I want to give you his um, understanding of this. And uh, again, this is not the gospel. I'm certainly not endorsing this necessarily because uh, I don't know what I think. Uh, uh, about it. I, I I don't think necessarily that we need to give a scientific uh, answer to this question. Um, but the one he's given is interesting. So I'm just going to read it to you verbatim, word for word. It's a little long, uh, but I'm just going to read it to you. Um, and so first of all, he looks at uh, this verse in Genesis 1-2, um, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So we see this phrase, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And about that, he says this, quote, The Hebrew word, moved, is critical in our understanding this passage. The, The word can be translated with several different applications. For instance, it may be interpreted as brood, flutter, shake, vibrate, and can even have the meaning of to be relaxed. I'm very much interested in the dual application of shake, vibrate, to that of being relaxed. In the Big Bang Theory, its premise is that there were some quantum fluctuations in which energy was converted to matter. In physics, a quantum is a discrete quantity or packet of energy, whereas in the biblical model, matter was created first and then energy. God provided the initial energy source to vibrate and shake the water molecules. This shaking created cavitation bubbles. These are vapor cavities or voids formed within a liquid. When there is sufficient pressure acting upon these bubbles, they collapse. The laws of physics and chemistry state that pressure and temperature are directly proportional. This means that when one increases, the other also increases. These collapsing bubbles will create enormous amounts of heat energy. Scientists have been able to actually measure the heat generated from the collapse of just a single cavitation bubble. They have recorded temperatures in excess of 20,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is far hotter than the surface of the sun. In this process of heat formation, a fourth state of matter is produced, namely plasma. It is the plasma that ionizes the trapped gas contained within the bubble, which will then emit energy in the form of light. 
What I just described is but a summary of a natural phenomenon that scientists are still investigating. Their study is based upon what is known as solo luminescence. That is, light produced by sound, or excuse me, sonoluminescence. That is, light produced by sound or shockwaves. In fact, some studies have suggested that even a fusion may occur within these extremely high temperatures. One study referred to it as a, quote, star within a jar, unquote. Fusion is when two hydrogen atoms combine to form a helium atom and produces energy and releasing um, releases heat and light. Fusion is the process whereby our sun and all the stars operate, close quote. And then he moves on to verse number three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Quote, when the Spirit of God began to move over the waters, I believe this action initiated an extraordinary chain of events. Initially, what was just described occurred. Additionally, unimaginable temperatures were produced, which triggered massive fusion reactions. This is the basis for the origin of the heavier elements. This heat also excited or elevated the electrons to move into a higher energy level. Then the command came. Let there be light. At that point, those electrons fulfilled the second part of the definition of moved, that is, to be relaxed. When this happened, they became more stable by dropping to a lower energy level, thus emitting photons of light. So this is an interesting um, suggestion. Um, I asked uh, Jim about this, actually, as it pertains to the matter of directional light, since directional light is required. And he said that would probably require um, a bit of adjustment and further study. But nevertheless, um, on this model, it has God creating the light bearers from the initial elements of uh, this um, initial ex nihilo creation, this initial formation. And so uh, it's possible... Um, in this understanding of things, that God created a directional light source from those first elements that began to turn into light. I don't know. Um, it's an interesting suggestion. I think it would have to be developed um, rigorously in order to see if this kind of suggestion would work. Um, but one reason why it's so compelling to me, from a scientific perspective, if we're just if we're just granting that we should look at it scientifically, um, I think it's interesting because it says that God separated the light from the darkness, and God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. And a suggestion such as Jim's here really seems to fit the narrative of of, of what the Bible describes actually happening. And so, who knows? Maybe that. Um, <sighs> I don't know. Maybe that doesn't have anything to do with the contextual suggestion that these are just days one through three, uh, that they are ordinary days. I, I don't know. All I know is that the Bible seems to give the indication that these are ordinary days and gives us um, chrono-genealogical information that tells us um, how long the earth has been here. Um, how long the generations of people have been on the earth. And so uh, there seems to be an unbroken chain of events, too many things going on to be a coincidence, uh, that indicate to us both theologically and scientifically that we must be dealing with uh, ordinary days in the beginning and a young age for the creation. So those are my thoughts uh, on this for today. I mean, let me know what your thoughts are. Maybe I'm wrong on this. I mean, maybe we should speculate scientifically on this. Um but I don't think we have to. Uh, whether or not we should, I don't know. But I certainly don't think we have to. And so this is, um, uh, in your conversations with folks, this is not a conundrum to get caught in. If you can't scientifically explain why days one through three were um, ordinary days, then it's not a shame on you kind of thing. You just simply need to explain how to understand the Bible. You use the context that's there. You cannot, and we dealt with this a lot last week, you can't deal with other what I call subjective interpretive difficulties, such as what the source of the light was um, in days one through three, to then argue that they weren't, they weren't ordinary days. Uh, just because we have a sun that constitutes what we understand as an ordinary day today does nothing to um, subvert what the Bible clearly records in the early chapters of Genesis. Hey, let's go ahead for today, close up, and say a word of prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and want to come to you today just uh, in utter uh, humility, in, in love, and Father, just in thankfulness for what you've done for us, and in praise for what you continue to do for us. We bow before you, Father, and we thank you for your mighty work of creation. We thank you for not only the creation that you've given us to enjoy and study in this world, but we thank you for the new creation that you made within each of us. We thank you for the new heart that you created for us and and gave to us, Father, and we love you for that. We love you for the ability to attain union with Christ, Lord. We thank you that we can be in Christ, and Christ can be in us, and we can live this Christian life with a friend, with a father, with a helper, with a comforter. We can never thank you enough for as good as you've been to your children. We thank you for the ability, Lord, and the passion to study your word and your world. And I pray, Father, as we seek to handle both of those things, that we would do so with the utmost care and the utmost respect for who you are. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you for joining me this week here on the Creation Academy. Don't forget to go to jointca.co. Sign up for that wait list and also for the Facebook group. Uh, join up in there and start talking with us. We're hanging out in there, talking about things that we talk about here on the podcast and uh, all kinds of things. So um, don't neglect that. Go ahead and get signed up for that today. And, uh, and we'll see you on the inside. All right, thanks. See you next week. Bye-bye.